Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Tonight we are going to be looking at Psalm 40. Next week, God willing and I live, we will look at Psalm 41, and that will be the end of book one of the Psalms. That being the case, we will probably start our winter break at that point, and then reconvene in January, and we will just see, come January, what we approach next. Even though I would like to spend some time in the book of Jeremiah, after having roughly six weeks off from the Psalms, we may end up back in the Psalms. So we'll just have to see what God decides. Psalm 40 is a messianic psalm. We have seen various types of psalms through these first 40 psalms, but this is a very messianic psalm. How do I know that? Well, it's not because of my interpretive skills. It's because the writer of Hebrews tells us so. So in looking at Psalm 40 tonight, we're going to have to spend a portion of our night in the book of Hebrews, and we're going to be reading one of my absolute favorite portions of the book of Hebrews, because if you believe in sovereign grace, and the finished atoning work of Christ, it is stated just as plainly and clearly in the section of Hebrews we're going to look at tonight as anywhere else in the New Testament. I mean, in the whole of the Bible, if you gave me nothing but Hebrews 10 to work with, I could clearly show you the sovereignty of God in salvation. And the writer of the book of Hebrews draws from Psalm 40 in order to make his argument. Psalm 40, verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me, and he heard my cry. Clearly, in these first couple of verses, David is writing about his own personal experience, and we can tell that because of the similarity to what we have seen from David in multiple other psalms. And yet, as David is writing about his trust in Yahweh, his confidence that God is going to deliver him, he's suddenly going to leap forward in a very prophetic way to speaking about what ultimate redemption is, where ultimate salvation comes from. Initially, David is talking about deliverance from his enemies, the same way that he has talked about deliverance from his sicknesses. And he is saying that God answered him didn't answer him immediately, apparently, because he said, I waited patiently for the Lord. But then his description of it is that God bowed down low. He inclined his ear toward me, and he heard my cry. And then rather than describing any particular event, David uses poetic language 
to describe the situation that he was in. And he said, he, God, brought me up out of the pit of destruction, up out of the miry clay. If you have an NASB, you might see in the notes there that it says literally mud of the mire. What's interesting is the Hebrew word being translated miry clay or the mud of the mire is a word that is also used for effervescence, for bubbling. So what David is describing here is a whole lot more than just getting your foot stuck in the mud. He's describing a kind of quicksand. He's describing a kind of bubbling clay that you would sink down into and not be able to escape. He said, that was my situation. And yet, even though I couldn't bring myself up out of that miry clay, God himself did it. And, of course, since that is an effervescent bubbling clay that you will sink down into, David refers to it as a pit of destruction. And the only deliverance from that pit of destruction obviously could not be David. David's the one who's caught in that pit. So he says, it is God who delivered me out of the miry clay. And he set my foot upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. We've seen that language many times from David through these psalms so far, where he compares having a foot that slips, having a foot that is unstable versus being able to stand on solid ground or standing on a rock, feeling like there is substance underneath your feet. And so he says here that he set my feet upon a rock. Now, I don't think that when David wrote those words, he necessarily meant it to be a reference to Christ. And yet, through the last 2,000 years of the church, That's become common language, common parlance, to refer to Christ as the rock. And I have heard several sermons based on, he set my feet upon a rock. The idea is he set me on Christ, and that is something solid, something with rigor, something that I can count on. He set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm, And he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Again, I find it really interesting who David credits with the fact that David, a musician, David, a songwriter, even though he's writing hymns and psalms about praising God, he has this newfound appreciation for God, this newfound praiseworthiness in God, And he credits God with giving it to him. That it is God who told me. It is God who showed me. It is God who demonstrated to me that he is worthy of my praise. And he put this new song in my mouth. A song of praise to our God. By the way, just parenthetically, I really like praise hymns. I like the songs that are praising God. There is a current crop of Christian music that Jeff refers to as the Jesus is my boyfriend songs that I don't particularly care for because they're they're about me. I don't mean me personally. I mean, they're they're not writing songs. Oh, Jim. but, But it's about yourself. It's about he saved me because he was lonely for me because he wanted me. And that's not really a praise song. 
explaining the virtues of God, singing the praises of God because of who he is, seeing value in God, recognizing that he is the one who delivers you from the pits of this life. Once you understand that's who God is, you're willing to praise him. So if you follow the succession of thoughts so far in this psalm, David said, I waited patiently for God. I cried to God. God bent down low and listened to me. And then he found me in this pit, in this miry clay. He lifted me out of it when I was unable to deliver myself. And as a consequence, I have new songs of praise to him because I recognize that he is my salvation. He is my deliverance. And I think that kind of describes all of us. If you've had an experience with God at all, part of that experience is recognizing your own sinfulness, your own inability to save yourself, and then finding him to be your full, complete redemption and salvation. And once you know that, it's not hard to praise him. If after that experience, after recognizing your own desperation and then God delivering you, if after that you're willing to sing songs about you, then you don't really appreciate who God is yet and what he has actually done for you, or you don't think you were all that bad off. But it is clear in the Bible that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, drowning in that muddy, miry, effervescent clay, And as you've heard me say time and time again, you cannot be the cure for you, you're your problem. Therefore, if God delivers you, yes, sing a new song. And it is God who will put that in your heart and in your mouth to sing praise to God. And then the result of it is that many will see, and the NASB says fear, it's the word for reference. Recognizing who God is, recognizing that he didn't have to save you, that he was under no obligation to you, and recognizing that he has all the power and the authority to judge in righteousness and could have just as easily cast you into outer darkness, and yet he is bringing you into his own presence, then you not only revere him, but you have a healthy fear of the power, the authority, the holiness, the judgment of God. And David says, that kind of fear, many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. That seems to be the result of David saying, I went through what I went through. Now I'm singing praises to God. And since I am singing those praises in the great congregation, which he's going to say in a moment, then many learned who God was, what God was like. And they also learned to fear God and put their trust in the Lord. Verse 4. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust. Those two words, has made, are a single Hebrew word that means to put something in its place, to lay something down in front of someone else. And so David is saying, how blessed is the man whose trust is not in himself, not in his circumstances, not in his strength, But all his trust is laid at the feet of God. All his trust is put in place in front of God. And how truly blessed that man is. 
How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. That's clearly a description of other human beings. In this lifetime, you're going to have trouble. In this lifetime, you're going to have difficulties. Okay, so who are you going to trust in those difficult times? Are you going to go to other human beings, human beings who have a tendency to lie and commit falsehoods, who are full of ego and pride? Is that who you're going to go to? Because that's your only other option if you're not going to turn to God. So the contrast that David lays out is, How blessed is the man who doesn't trust in the proud human beings or those kind of people who lapse into falsehood and lying and telling you what you want to hear. A truly blessed man will put his trust in God regardless of the circumstances. Verse 5. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which thou hast done, and many are thy thoughts toward us. That's a remarkable thing that David has stated here, that God himself, who has plenty to do, he's busy keeping the universe spinning and busy keeping every atom in its place, and he is Lord over all the hosts of heaven, and and yet he would pay attention to you, yet he would incline his ear to listen to you, yet he would care about your needs, and he would think about you. David is marveling at that. Not only has the Lord done many wonders, he knows the history of Israel up to that point. He knows stories like the flood. He knows stories like the deliverance from Egypt. He knows the drying up of the Red Sea. He knows the many miracles and judgments of God. So he says, many wonders you've done. But then he says, many are your thoughts toward us. I think that's a wonderful intimacy that he has put in there because God actually pays attention to his people. And he knows if you're struggling. He knows if you're in some kind of trial. He is bending down to listen when you cry to him. As a consequence, David declares, there is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, your works, your thoughts, your ways, they would be too numerous to count. Okay, now that's the end of the first section of this psalm. And it's a great, wonderful section. If it stood all by itself as a five-verse psalm, we would say, well, that's a really good psalm. It's David praising God for delivering him and recognizing the marvel that God pays attention, that he inclines his ear, that he thinks about us. That's really, truly amazing. But then suddenly... David takes this left turn and starts speaking prophetically of the Messiah to come. Clearly, David is not talking about himself here. Sacrifice, he's referring to blood sacrifices, those that are required by the law. Taking continual sacrifice into the temple. Blood sacrifice and meal offerings you have not desired. How can David say that? He's a king under the law of Moses. The law of Moses declares that there has to be a regular course of sacrifices and blood and meal offerings and wave offerings and sheave offerings. There's this constant giving of offerings inside the temple. And here is David under the law saying, blood sacrifice and meal offerings, 
you don't desire. My ears thou hast opened. Hang on to that phrase because we're going to have to discuss that phrase when we get to Hebrews 10. Burnt offerings and sin offerings thou hast not required. Yes, he has. <laughs> it's right in his law. He has indeed required these constant sin offerings. That's what the Day of Atonement is all about. And burnt offerings are a regular part of worship and sacrifice, sending sweet aromas up into the nostrils of God. And yet here is David saying, all these offerings, the blood sacrifices, the meal offerings, the burnt offerings, the sin offerings, that's not sufficient. That's not what you have ultimately required so then what is he requiring? What is the answer? If all these sacrifices, all these animals, all these burnt offerings, all these sin offerings, if all this blood and all these gifts to God and offerings, if all of that is not sufficient, then we're lost. God is going to judge us, and we don't have an adequate sacrifice. So then what is the answer? Look at the brilliance of David's theology a thousand years before Christ walked on the planet. Verse 7. Then I said, this is clearly not David speaking. Then I said, behold, I come. In the scroll of the book, it's written about me. I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Thy law is written within my heart. I have proclaimed good news. I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. That reference to the great congregation is all the people of God collectively, whether we're talking about those chosen of Israel, those chosen of the church, that assembly of the firstborn, as the writer of Hebrews calls them, that is the great congregation. And the declaration of righteousness in the great congregation comes from this one who says in the scroll of the book, it's all written about me. It's all leading to me. I've come to do your will, O God, and your law is written in my inward parts. It's written in my heart. I'm going to perform your law. I'm going to accomplish your law. And then I'm going to proclaim good news to all your people. So the contrast is there's all these sacrifices in the Old Testament, all these sacrifices that Moses came down off Mount Sinai with, all these required sacrifices that had to be done continually. And yet David declares, they're not enough. It's not sufficient. You haven't required that. And then the answer to how we're going to be saved, how we're genuinely going to achieve a righteousness that is acceptable before God, is again not within us, but in fact is in our substitute, in someone else who declares Behold, I come. And in the entirety of the book, in the scroll of the book, it's all pointing to me. It's all written about me. And I've come to do the will of God. I delight to do the will of God and the law of God, which required those sacrifices that could never save anybody. That law of God is written in the heart 
of our Messiah, our Savior. He accomplished the law as our substitute since it's clear and obvious that we can't do it. And then he proclaims this incredibly good news of genuine righteousness accomplished through his finished work to the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips. He's going to declare it openly and to everyone, O Lord, thou knowest. Okay, so let's put a bookmark, put a finger right there in the book of of Psalms and go to the book of Hebrews. Because the writer of the book of Hebrews, being a Hebrew, writing to Hebrews, stop me when this is too obvious, makes a lot of references to Old Testament statements and theology, and in this case, Psalms. And he declares that that psalm was actually about Christ, and he writes that it is proof, it is evidence, it is a demonstration that even in David's time, it was revealed to David that the old covenant was not sufficient, that the old covenant was never going to do away with sin. The old covenant was never going to accomplish what needed to be accomplished for our salvation, for our redemption. And he uses that particular psalm to make his point. So he's making a very biblical argument. He's arguing from the very texts that the Jews are carrying around. They know these texts. And here the writer of Hebrews is proving that those texts point to Jesus, and Jesus is the all-sufficient sacrifice in a way that all the animals and all the sacrifices and all the blood simply could not be. And his theology is supported by what David already wrote. So that was kind of all introduction, because I love Hebrews 10. Chapter 10, verse 1 of the book of Hebrews. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of those things, can never, by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Those who come to God with that nonstop yearly sacrifice are never going to be perfected by those sacrifices. And his evidence is going to be because if it ever did perfect us, we would have no more conscious of our sinfulness. But the very fact that we are conscious of our sinfulness proves that those sacrifices didn't do away with our guilt or our sin. That's verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. If any of those animal sacrifices had once and for all paid off our sin debt, why would we go back and do that sacrifice again? Because it did it. It accomplished it. And yet the history of Judaism is that for 1,400 years, they had to sacrifice those same sacrifices year in, year out, every month, every week. They had a whole series, a whole course of bloodshed that had to happen in the temple that never did away with sin ultimately. It's the same thing David was arguing. Those blood sacrifices are never what you require 
Verse 3. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. The same way that the Apostle Paul says in Romans 7, that the purpose of the law was to make sin all the more obvious, all the more sinful. And then he argues that he wouldn't have even known that he was sinning like coveting had it not been for the law saying, don't covet. And then he realized, oh my gosh, I'm coveting all the time. But he wouldn't have known that had the law not said it. So the purpose of the law was to expose how sinful we actually are. The writer of Hebrews, who some people argue is Paul, the writer of Hebrews tells us that the sacrifices being done year by year were never for the purpose of cleansing sin once and for all. Rather, it was a reminder of sin year by year. The very fact that you had to go take those sacrifices to the temple, the very fact that that blood had to continue flowing was a demonstration to you that you're still not good enough because you still got to bring another sacrifice. And you've sinned plenty this past year, so get up to Jerusalem on the Day of Atonement and do that whole process yet again and again and again. It's never going to cleanse you. It's going to remind you of how truly sinful you are. Why? Because verse 4 says, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Of course it is. Brute beasts, animals, have never really sinned against God because they have no conscience of God. They're unaware of God or his law or his standards. They're just busy acting on instinct. But human beings do have that mind, do have that conscience, do have that culpability before God. We have that guilt in knowing that our actions are sinful and rebellious against God, and yet we do it anyway because, as Paul said, we just can't help it. Those things we want to do, that's not what we do. The things we don't want to do, that's what we end up doing. That makes us guilty before God. So if you could go kill an animal who has no awareness of God or his law, and you kill that animal, is that really satisfying your sin debt to God? No, and the writer of Hebrews states it that way. It's impossible. It can't be done. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and the blood of goats to take away your personal sin debt. Therefore, that being the dilemma, we're all sinful. We've sinned against a righteous, holy, eternal God, and sacrifices can't help us. So what's the answer? Verse 5. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he's still speaking of God, God coming into the world. When he comes into the world, he says, and now he's quoting directly from Psalm 40, sacrifice and offerings thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the roll of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God. So there you have the New Testament commentary 
on that section of Psalm 40, that it is Christocentric, that it is messianic in nature, and that it is the answer even in the Old Testament, even a thousand years before Christ came, it is the answer to what hope do we human beings have? Because we can't help ourselves. We're stuck in the miry clay. And even our blood sacrifices, even being obedient to the law, even doing those things, can't help us. The answer has to come from God. And the answer is Christ himself becoming our sacrifice for us. A perfect sacrifice, a once-for-all sacrifice. And in order to be that, in order to do that, he had to have a physical body. But a body thou hast prepared for me. Now, in Psalm 40, as we read that same section, what you'll read is, Sacrifice and meal offerings you have not desired, my ears thou hast opened. But the writer of Hebrews writes, But a body thou hast prepared for me. And actually, that is an accurate rendering of what you find in the Septuagint, because the writer of the book of Hebrews is working from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And apparently, the interpreters of the Septuagint felt that the Hebrew phrase, which is more literally, you bore out my ears, It has the sense of making it. You created my ears. You gave me the ability to hear. You gave me the ability to understand. And so the interpreters who worked on the Septuagint felt that they would go with the sense of that phrase rather than the literal words of that phrase. The literal words are, you bore out my ear. The implication is, you made me. And so the writer of Hebrews is accurately going with what the Septuagint actually says. It's the writers and interpreters of the Septuagint who felt that that phrase, you bore out my ears, was more accurately rendered, you created me, you made me, you gave me flesh, you gave me physical fleshly ears, and so it is written as, you gave me a body. And that actually fits theologically with the whole idea of Christ is coming. He's coming into the world. And if he, in fact, comes into the world, as verse 5 says, well, then he's going to need a physical body. If he only comes spiritually, then he can't die for sin. He can't be an actual blood sacrifice. If he doesn't have any blood, he can't spill his blood. And so the writer of Hebrews goes with, The sacrifices that are demanded in the Old Covenant, that's not what you desire. That's not the end of it. That's not the requirement that you need in order to forgive people for their sin. So what you did was you prepared a physical body for your son so that he could come to earth, so that he could be the final sacrifice. And then in whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you've taken no pleasure. And then Christ says, he volunteers himself. I said, behold, I have come. And in the scroll of the book, it's written about me. That's just like Jesus saying to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. But they are they that testify of me. If you want eternal life, you got to come to me. You're looking in the scripture thinking you're going to find eternal life in there. And they're all pointing to me. 
So again, this very Christocentric theology, whether it's David, whether it's the writer of Hebrews, that the ultimate sacrifice, the acceptable sacrifice, the only sin-forgiving sacrifice is Christ voluntarily coming to the planet and saying, behold, I've come, and the whole of the scripture said that he was going to come, and he has come to do the will of God. And what is the will of God? To be that final sacrifice. Well, that's the rest of what we're about to read. Here is the commentary from the writer of Hebrews. Verse 8. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast not desired, nor hast thou taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do thy will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. And so the writer of Hebrews is arguing that the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant that was made with the Hebrews, with the people of Israel, that covenant was insufficient to actually accomplish salvation because it was based on blood sacrifices of animals and it was impossible that those were ever going to be sufficient. But the new covenant is established in the blood of Christ who gave himself as a sin sacrifice for us. And so the writer of Hebrews says that establishes the new covenant and it utterly takes away the old covenant. What the old covenant could not do, the new covenant completely did. So completely, wait till we get to verse 14. That is a verse that I memorized years and years ago and have carried around with me. By this will, says verse 10, that's a reference back to verse 9, behold, I come to do your will. By this will, the will of God who sent Christ to the planet, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's in contrast with the nonstop killing of animals, the nonstop blood, the nonstop sacrifices that were just a reminder of the fact that people were still sinful. But when Christ came, he only had to sacrifice himself once. That's how complete the sacrifice was. And God accepted that sacrifice as complete and total payment for the sins of his people. But then, but then in order to really drive that contrast home, in verse 11, the writer of Hebrews says, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the exact same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Now, earlier in the book of Hebrews, he talked about some of the furniture that is in the tabernacle in the wilderness. And even though there's a labor of cleansing, and even though there's a table of showbread, and even though there's the Ark of the Covenant, and there's the, the candlestick, and even though there's all that furniture inside that tent, the one thing that was conspicuously missing was a chair. There's no stool. There's no chaise lounge. There, there's no place for the priest to sit down because the work was never finished. It was constant work, constant sacrifice. If you were in the temple of God, if you were in the tabernacle of God, you were working. That's all you could do. The priest had to work nonstop, 
daily, sacrificing the same sacrifices over and over again. The contrast is when Christ offered his sacrifice for sin, his single sacrifice for all time, so it doesn't have to be done again and again and again and again. Once he had sacrificed that, he sat down because the work was finished. He had done it. He had accomplished it. And interestingly, he's sitting at the Father's right hand, meaning that the Father has accepted his sacrifice. He, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time on until his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. Has that happened yet? That's some of the stuff we're talking about on Sunday mornings out of the book of Revelation. Him returning as king of kings and lord of lords, all his enemies finally being put under his feet. Him ruling with a two-edged sword out of his mouth and a rod of iron with which he's going to crush the nations. That is still coming. So from the time until he made his sacrifice, until the time that he returns in power and glory, he is sitting at the Father's right hand having accomplished the sin sacrifice once for all. Verse 14, for by that one offering, he has perfected forever those that he sanctified. That's the gospel in a verse right there. Amen. He did it. He accomplished it. We talk a lot here at GCA about accomplished redemption, that it's a finished work, that Jesus didn't try to save people. He actually saved people. The people he died for are actually saved. And that verse right there says that the single sacrifice of Christ, in contrast to all those animals, the blood of bulls and goats that was continually running out of the temple, that never saved anybody. By contrast, Christ sacrificed himself once. His blood flowed once. And by that one offering, he perfected forever, perfected for all time, once and for all completed the salvation of the people who he separated, who he sanctified, who he called to himself. Are you feeling pretty saved right now? Yes. You certainly should. And the Holy Spirit, says verse 15, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, he's now quoting out of Jeremiah 31. He's continuing to use the Old Testament scripture as his evidence of his theology. After saying, this is the covenant, the new covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their hearts and upon their mind will I write them. And he then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any necessity for the offering for sins. So you contrast the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Why aren't we out back sacrificing animals? Why would we be sacrificing lambs and bulls out back? That would only be if we still had a conscience of sin and we were aware of our rebellion against God and that we stood unforgiven before him. But because we have a perfect Savior, because he has offered a perfect sacrifice, we 
who are in him, we who have his Holy Spirit in us, have no longer that conscience of sin. Therefore, we can run to God crying, Abba, Father, because we know that Christ is sitting at his right hand, ever making intercession for us when we sin. And being able to say, I sacrificed for that person once and for all. Therefore, they are perfected forever. And therefore, where there is forgiveness of all these sins, all these trespasses, there's no longer any offering for sin. The reason we don't offer for sin is because Christ is our sacrifice and he fully paid the debt. And that's why David could say prophetically, These sacrifices we're doing by the law continually, that's not what you require. David wasn't saying, you don't require that of us. We, Israel, are going to stop doing it now. They were under the law, and they had to keep doing it, but it wasn't sufficient. That wasn't God's ultimate requirement. What he required was that his son come to the planet, take on a body, be the final sacrifice for sin. Only that was going to be sufficient payment for people like us. And David wrote that a thousand years before Christ got here. I know I've said it a lot of times, but if I didn't worship the God of this Bible, I'd have to worship the people who figured out how to write it. Because that is a very consistent theology. Back to Psalm 40. Before you go there, I was just noticing that in verse 14 of Hebrews 10, word he uses, he's perfected, is the exact same word that Jesus used hanging on the cross. Yeah. It is finished. It is finished. Yeah. It is perfected. It's accomplished. In either case, yeah. they have the same meaning. Yeah. Done and done. And yeah. it's perfect tense, which means it has been and is yeah. finished. We stand right now perfected in his finished work. Isn't that great? I mean, come on. It was worth the drive to GCA tonight just to think about that. He's a perfect Savior. We are back in Psalm 40. In verse 11, verse 11 can be interpreted Christologically, but I think David is back to writing first person for the rest of this psalm. Even though you could spiritualize it to make it, like I said, Christological, but I don't think that's necessary. Thou, O Lord, wilt not withhold thy compassion from me. Thy loving kindness and thy thy truth will continually preserve me. So David now has confidence that God is going to take him through everything. But where is that confidence coming from? It's based on the fact that he knows that this one is coming, the Messiah is coming, the one who the scroll of the book is written about, who's going to come and do the will of God, who's going to be the final sacrifice. Based on that finished work, David can confidently say that God is never going to withhold his compassion from David. And his loving kindness and God's truth is continually going to preserve David, not based on David, not based on David's strength, not based on David's ability to perform the law, but based on the fact that God himself has created a perfect sacrifice for himself. David's situation in verse 12 is, For evils beyond number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me. 
so that I'm not able to see. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head. So here is David admitting that my sins have just overwhelmed me. I can't begin to count them. I can't begin to think of them. I'm just continually sinful. My iniquities have just completely overtaken me. And he closes by saying, my heart has failed me when I think about my iniquities that are more numerous than the hairs of my head. So where is deliverance going to come from? That's verse 13. Be pleased, O Yahweh, to deliver me. Make haste, O Lord, to help me. It's the only place deliverance and help can come from. I really don't have time now to extrapolate on that. But just remember as you walk out of here that consistently throughout the Bible, anywhere you look, the solution to your problem is never, never you. And David knew that. He knew his iniquities and his rebellions and his sins against God were so numerous that there was no way he was going to be able to help himself. My heart has failed me. So be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Make haste, O Lord, to help me. Let those be ashamed and humiliated together who seek my life to destroy it. Let those be turned back and dishonored who delight in my hurt. Now, yes, I I suppose you could say, okay, maybe Christ on the cross could be prefigured in those kind of statements. But Christ never drew that connection. None of the New Testament writers drew that connection the same way that the writer of Hebrews did connect the earlier part of the psalm. So I think this is David speaking of his circumstances, and it's not necessarily meant to be spiritualized to apply to Christ. Verse 15, we're nearly done. Let those be appalled because of their shame, those who say to me, aha, aha, those who are discovering things about me that they think are going to destroy me, take me down. Let them be ashamed. Let all those who seek thee rejoice and be glad in thee. Let those who love thy salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. What a perfect bit of theology. Anybody who recognizes that they are indeed saved and those people who love the salvation of God. I don't know if that's any of you, but that's certainly me. I I love the fact that God sent Christ to save me. So what do we say? Do we say, yay me. God saved me because I'm so good. God saved me because it wouldn't be heaven without me. God saved me because of me. Jesus is my boyfriend. No, absolutely not. If you love the salvation of God, then you're going to praise God. You're going to say, the Lord be magnified. Yahweh be lifted up. All praise to him because he's the one who did for us what we simply could not and would not do for ourselves. God is in the enterprise of glorifying himself, and that is nowhere more evident than in the fact that he saved wretches like us. Verse 17, since I am afflicted and needy, let the Lord, again, this is how we started, incline your ear to me, listen to me. I'm afflicted and needy, so let the Lord be mindful of me. Let his thoughts be toward me. And you are my help. You are my deliverer. Do not delay 
O my God. And that is the end of Psalm 40. What a great psalm. What a great psalm. And I love how the theology of the Bible is so astoundingly consistent. And that you can start back in David's writing, which many people just think of as poetic. It's just a series of poems. And yet David writes things that are of such theological value that they get picked up and extrapolated on in the New Testament because God is constantly revealing himself and he has revealed himself as being a good God who requires righteousness, who requires sacrifice, who requires perfection. And since we can't do it, he provided it himself. That's a really good God. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.